Okay, why don't you go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 4. That's where we're going to be this morning, Revelation chapter 4. As you're turning there, you know, I, I remember back when we were first trying to get this thing together that we called Harvest Muskoka, trying to get this thing launched out. And as we were doing that, we, we began to ask these kind of questions of each other that were gathering together in this small group, hoping for a church to launch out. And we're, we're asking, well, what if there are a church that, that, in, that instead of cleverness and marketing, that we spent more time on our knees in prayer? What if there's a church where on a, on a Sunday morning there would be such an awe and worship surrounding our love of God that he would be front and center, that, that it wasn't about who was preaching, it wasn't about the lights or the instruments or the worship team, but, but that you would encounter God, that you'd have an experience with his manifest presence and you'd be changed. What if there was a church where there was a community that was established amongst the people who attended, where, where it, was, it was such a, a different community, we would call it an uncommon community because it wasn't like anything we'd ever experienced? What if there were families that had such a, a fear of the Lord, that were so amazed by God's grace that, that the, they were strikingly different? the depth of their love, the, the ease of forgiveness, the commitment they had to each other. What, what, if, what if we had a church where if everyone who called this church home, they had a, a courage in the face of trials, where, where personal preference always came a distant second place to, to living for, to displaying the gospel of Jesus Christ, to take care of the needs of those around us. Where, where, yes, we would experience trials, but they wouldn't take us out. Where, where we'd be known for courage and love and joy. Now, here's the key in all of this. What, what I described there for, man, what if there was a church like this? What if there were families like this? What if there were Christ followers like this? None of this is something we'll ever drift towards. You, you look throughout church history, and, and, and churches don't drift. You look through it, even your family history, man. If one thing that COVID has shown us, it's this, that, that, that we don't drift towards these things. We, we drift towards complacency. We drift towards fear. We drift towards despair. We don't drift towards joy and courage and love. It's because of that, we need a focus. We need to lean into what matters. We, if, if we want to see joy and hope and courage and transformation, we need a clear focus together. I think about what 2020 has been so far, and, and, and for some of you, this season has, has it's, been, it's been inconvenient, but it, it's been a, a, a little bit of a bump. Maybe, maybe work's been more complicated. School, if you're in school, it's, it's definitely a, a weirder experience. And you have to wear a mask now wherever you go, but, but for some of you, this has not even just been a, a season that's been inconvenient. For some, this has been a very difficult season. Maybe you have job loss. Maybe you've lost a loved one and the, and the funeral was so difficult to, to be able to actually engage in because of all the restrictions. Some of you have experienced loneliness and despair. As we turn to the book of Revelation, this is what the book of Revelation is all about. All right. Some people get jazzed up about a revelation because they think it's, hey, are we going to like dig in and try to decode some of the mystery of the end times? That's not what the book of Revelation is about. It was written to a suffering church, pointing them to the reality that there is something so much greater. And so you have Revelation 4 open right now. Verse 1 says this. It says, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard speaking 
to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. Now chapter four doesn't just come out of nowhere. He says, after this, after what? John had been, John, the, the one who's writing this, had been in a conversation with Jesus. And Jesus, in chapters two and three leading up to this, he'd been talking to, about these churches. He'd been speaking to these churches, churches that are in the midst of suffering, churches that are in the midst of sin and fear, struggling with their purpose as a church, struggling with what it looks like to follow Christ. Some of the churches, some of the people are thriving, and Jesus wanted to say, keep going, endure. Some were compromising. Some were falling into complacency. And so, so what happens here? What is Jesus' purpose as he writes this? How, how does he even want to motivate us to, to stand firm in suffering? How does he motivate us to, to turn away from sin? To, how does he motivate us to, to be all about spreading the good news of Jesus Christ at, at any cost? How does he motivate us to have a, a deeper purpose and identity? What we see here, God motivates us, Jesus motivates us with a vision of himself. What he's saying is this, hey, see everything about your life, the suffering you may be in, the world you live in, see all of it in light of who I am. See everything with a clear view of the glory of God. I mean, imagine the impact it would have on your life, on your family, on our church, if, if we saw the glory of God revealed amongst us. If, if we pursued God's glory above everything else, that was our life pursuit. I want to see God glorified. I mean, things that seem so important and so significant would, would start to seem a lot smaller, wouldn't they? Things that, that we, we think are so powerful, we'd suddenly realize maybe those things aren't as important as we thought. And maybe some other things that don't seem so important, would, you'd start to suddenly realize, man, this is what my life is about. It would turn our lives upside down if that was our singular focus. God, I want to see your glory. And I don't claim to be the, the smartest pastor, the most creative pastor, the wisest pastor. I, I don't claim to know everything there is to know, but I, I do believe this with all my heart because I see it all over Scripture that when we catch a glimpse of the glory of God as a church, as a people, we would have everything we need, we need no matter what we think we lack. We could just get a glimpse of God's glory. A glimpse of it. What is this all about? If we, if, if we could have that, it would give us endurance. It would give us purpose. It would give us courage. It would give us joy, even in the hardest of times. That's the point of Revelation. That was the point for those people living in, in that time. That's the point for us today, to look at everything in our lives through what is God doing? What's his glory being revealed in this? I mean, so my goal for us this morning, as we spend just a few minutes here this morning looking at this passage, is that we would walk out of here with, with new eyes, with a, a new perspective. That we'd see everything in our life, whew, we'd see everything in our life from this perspective, to see his glory. To see his glory would be this unshakable foundation for our lives, for our families, for our church. And my, my prayer is this, that if you come in here this morning and you feel weak, that a vision of God's glory would give you strength. If, if you're sorrowful, you'd find comfort this morning. If, if you're confused, you'd find clarity. If, if you're weary, you'd find hope. If you're distracted and complacent, that you would have a fire burning inside of you. If, if, if you're distracted by silly arguments about a piece of cloth on your face, you would find something much more eternal to have your life be about. If you're struggling with sin, you, you would be empowered towards holiness. If, if you're timid in your witness, you would find courage by a vision of Jesus Christ, by his glory.
I mean, that's the key. The key for our lives today is this. Keep an eye on the glory of God. Have our minds set on things above, not things on earth. This view of God's glory, it changes everything. And here's the first thing we see as we unpack this. Verse 1 says this, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. Here's the first point this morning. It's this. It just, this should blow our minds. We have access to see God's glory. We have access to see God's glory. It should blow us away. Here's Christ right here in verse 1, inviting John, saying, Hey, come on up. The door to heaven is open to you. Now, the wording here makes it clear that John did not open this door. That door was closed. It was opened up for him. He couldn't barge in. He didn't sneak into the throne room of God. It, the door was opened. God the Father opens it through Jesus Christ, his son. Listen, listen, let's not just glance over this amazing truth. We should stop right there. Almost like you're hearing somebody tell a story. And they say, oh yeah, and then as I was visiting the queen in the Buckingham Palace, and you go, whoa, whoa, wait, what did you say? You were Where? You are in bucket. How did you get that? That's what's going on here. The door to heaven is open. And we should stop and go, what? Are you kidding me? I get to go into the throne room of God to see his glory. The door is open. A relationship with God is available to me. I ask myself this so often. When did I, when did we as a church, when did we as a people lose the amazing of amazing grace? We have access to God. And nobody here, no one here can open that door on their own. No amount of good works, who cares how great your parents were, who cares how often you go to church, who cares about how religious you are, you're not opening that door. We don't do anything to open that door. But here's what's amazing about that. Your sin, even. Your past, the choices you've made, it, it shut that door. You can't open it, but, but here's the amazing news. Your sin doesn't stop God from opening that door. In fact, look at chapter 5. Chapter 5 says this, verse 1, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within, and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaim with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb as though it had been slain. Here we have Jesus, the, the conquering lion, the, the, the slain lamb. He paid our debt, took our sin on himself, conquering sin, and now through him we have this access. He's the one worthy to open the door. He's the one worthy to open the scrolls. Here's this gift from God we have. Come on into the throne room. But this gift needs to be accepted. I mean, how often, though, have you ever left a gift unopened? It's your birthday. Here's this great present. Thanks. See ya. Nobody does that, right? right? The gift is given. Like, I want to open this thing up. You, you don't open that card up from grandma and, and say, hey, thanks for the check. I probably won't cash it. No, you're going to accept that, right? But, and here we have the greatest gift given to us. You, you have the door of heaven open to you. My question is this. Have you accepted it? Have you made it your own? 
I mean, if you hear this truth Sunday after Sunday and you just walk out of here going, hey, whatever, listen, the door's not open for you. It's still closed. But, but when you accept that you're a sinner and then you believe that Christ, the slain lamb, that he paid the penalty for your sins and you confess him personally, confess him as your savior, the door is wide open. My question is, have you done that? Have you made that decision for yourself? If not, don't leave here this morning without saying, I want that. I want that door opened. If you're like, I've done that. I, I'm a follower of Christ. I, I've, I've, I've made that commitment. My question is this. Are you living today in light of that gift as though the door to God's throne room is open to you? Is that how you're living? I mean, Jesus says, come up here. The door's open. I mean, that changes everything. I mean, in, just in that one verse, we have a, a security knowing that our, our future is sure. In that one verse, we can begin to go, now I know who I am. Now I know my purpose. John walks through that door, sees in heaven, and what's the first thing he sees? It's amazing. He's not drawn to the crystal sea. He's not drawn to the streets of gold. Nothing going on around him draws his attention. The first thing that he's struck by was the glory of God. And what's the first thing he sees? If you're taking notes, it's this. He sees God's throne. God is on his throne. God is on his throne is our second point this morning. It says this, he, verse 2, he goes on. At once I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, and one seated on the throne. The first thing he sees is this, is this throne, this, this throne now mentioned over a dozen times, just in chapter 4, 40 times in the book of Revelation, this word throne is used. It's so important. In fact, I would say this, the throne is the image of heaven. It's the logo of heaven. It's like this, if, if, if I were to say to you, hey, hey, picture something when I say Paris, we, we kind of picture, oh. The Eiffel Tower. It's kind of, that's the, 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 the landmark of Paris. Well, that's the throne in heaven. When you think about heaven, it's all about the throne. It's the, it's the logo on the highway signs of heaven, right? There's a little throne there, all right? Now, why a throne? Why is a throne so important here? What's so special about a throne? Well, here's one thing. Not, not everybody can just go jump on a throne, right? Thrones are special. Maybe you grew up in a home like I did with a dad like I had, or maybe you're this dad now. My dad had a throne in the living room. You guys had that? The dad chair? Anybody have one of those, right? When you're growing up? Like there was a chair, and everybody knew that's dad's chair, right? That's where he sits, and none of us were allowed to sit on that throne. We would try, all right? We would try to sit on there, but as soon as he walked in the room, he didn't even have to say, hey, get out of my chair. You just knew. You just jumped out of that chair, let him sit down, right? And he got in there, the rightful owner of that throne, where, where this is where he ruled, right? He, he, his commands and decrees came forth from that throne, right? Get me the remote. Like stuff like that, right? Okay, super lame illustration, but what I'm saying is this. There's a, a ruling, there's a power that's being, being implied with this throne. That's God's throne. He rules heaven. He rules the universe. And, and what's he doing on the throne? Look again at verse 2. At once, I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven. Okay, there's this throne. What's going on? And one seated on the throne. I love that, that picture that God is seated on his throne. He's in charge. He's in control. 
God's not pacing heaven. God's not wringing his hands. He's not scratching his head. He, he's not running around frantically. God is seated on his throne in control. God is under control. Not worried, not strained, not stressed out. When life seems out of control, I gotta tell you, I, I love that picture that my God in his glory is seated on his throne. Peace in the midst of chaos provides us joy when we don't know what tomorrow holds. Hope in the middle of tragedy. God's in control. He's at work. Listen, 2020 is not freaking God out like it's freaking us out, all right? In fact, you think about what's going on right here as John's writing this, what's going on in his world right there. Everything's in chaos. Rome seems to be in charge. Rome seems to be on the throne, right? Most of the churches are a complete mess at this time. All the disciples have been brutally martyred except for John. He's been exiled as a prisoner on this island of Patmos. Now John looks and sees in the, the midst of all of this chaos, God is actually in charge. The throne is standing, it said. It's unmoved by events. It's unmoved by, by world, world leaders. It's unmoved by history. A, a fixed throne in the center of everything. God, not surprised by what's going on. Not surprised by COVID. Not surprised by, by life changes. Not surprised by political strife. Not surprised by sickness or suffering or job loss or relationship struggles. God is on the throne. For John to see that, listen, Caesar's not on the throne. Satan is not on the throne. People are not on the throne. My circumstances are not on the throne. God is in control. And if we lose the truth of this glory of God in his sovereign control, we lose God. So we see over and over again throughout the book of Revelation, just this, this throne, he's on a throne, there's a throne, God is in control, you're in his hands. I pray that gives us comfort that has handles on it. Right? More, than, more than in your trial where someone say, hey, hey, it's probably going to all work out in the end. Maybe good will come out of this. No, no, we can take comfort in this. God's on his throne. God knows what I'm going through. He's eternal, he's powerful, and he's in charge. There's hope and joy in that. Now John describes what he sees, God on his throne. He begins to describe what God's glory is like. And here's our third point this morning is what does he see? God is awesome. God is awesome. Now, I wish I had a different word to use here because we use that word way too much probably, right? It's, it's one of those words we overuse and it loses its value. So we can look at a sky filled with stars and go, that is awesome. And then we can get our poutine order and go, this is awesome, right? Kind of throw the word around here. I mean, I do it all the time as well, but, but let's hear the word here. When I say God is awesome, take it in its literal meaning of what it is, that, that it inspires awe. That to see God in his glory, it brings awe. Awe, a, a feeling of, of reverence, of amazement. Like, like, this is so beyond words, I can't even describe it. I can just call it awesome. Like, I fall on my face, jaw dropped open, mind blowing, knees buckling. I'm never going to be the same again. That kind of awesome. God is awesome. Amen. When we see him, it changes everything. Amen. Look at John's description. Look, look at verse three. It says, And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carmelian, and around the throne was a rainbow and had the appearance of an emerald. He said, he, he looked like Jasper. What's Jasper? Jasper's a friendly ghost, right? 
No, that's not, that's Casper. Jasper, well, Jasper is, Jasper is, it's used in Scripture in a lot of other places. Revelation 21, 11 talks about Jasper and says that it was, it was rare. It was, it was a clear stone. Most scholars say it may be an ancient term for a diamond. That, that God's appearance is like this shining diamond. He shone, he shone like car- carnelian. Which is, that's this bright red ruby stone, fiery bright. That, that's this, this picture, man, God is so awesome. And, and John's like, he's not saying that's what he is, but this is kind of what it's like. 1 Timothy 6.16 says that God dwells in an unapproachable light. Hebrews 12.29, quoting Deuteronomy, says that, that our God is a consuming fire. So here John says, man, he's just so brilliant. He's unbelievably magnificent. It's almost frightening to see him. I mean, Ezekiel described the same thing and he fell on his face. Isaiah described the same thing. He fell on his face. Daniel describes this in, in Daniel 7, verse 9. He says his, his throne was ablaze with flames. A, a river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. And then Daniel goes on to describe myriads and myriads of angels around this throne. I mean, in all the accounts we see of heaven, we see the same thing. This clarity, this purity, this brightness, this blazing fire and flames And then here, what's it say? It circles around it. There's this this emerald rainbow around. In the the center of this blazing purity, this holiness of God that would cause you to fall over in fear, you now see this rainbow around that, kind of bringing us back to the promise God gave in Genesis, this promise of his faithfulness. So around God's awesome holiness is this, this symbol of grace. I mean, so amazing. I kind of read it this way. It's like John seeing all of this and he's so blown away by it. He can't barely describe it. In fact, he hits verse four. He starts going, let me just tell you what's going on around this throne because I can't even tell you what God in his glory on this throne looks like. So what's he say in verse four? Around the throne were 24 thrones. And seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne was it was as it were a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. So there's, there's, there's this thunder coming out. There's the, the Spirit of God, seven representing this, the perfectness of God's Spirit. John's describing the scene. He goes, this rolls of thunder and lightning. I mean, is there anything more powerful that, that you can imagine when you're in the midst of a thunderstorm? I mean, a running joke we have around here at Harvest, if you've been here long enough, if you remember back to our first outdoor baptism, anybody were around back then? We had that outdoor baptism, the tent set up, and what happened? A huge thunderstorm rolls in, and lightning is, is lighting the place up all around us, and, and Eric, Pastor Eric, he's like a little puppy, just shaking, and he's saying, we gotta shut this down, and he's hiding everywhere he can. Why? Because it was, it was, it was a bit scary. I was probably kind of dumb back then, going, oh no, God will protect us, we can keep going. Metal poles, whatever, let's keep going, right? It was this scary. And when the lightning hit because it was so close, you know that when the thunder claps so loud, I don't care how tough you are, it makes you scared inside a little bit. Now imagine seeing this. That's in the, in, in the throne room of God. Seeing him in all his fiery brightness, thunder and light. It's just awesome. You get a glimpse of that. It changes everything. 
And I would say this, it should change us in a way that we reflect that glory in our lives. That people would say, man, you've been somewhere that I haven't been. You, you see this all through scripture. When people come face to face with the glory of God, what do they do? Isaiah cries out, I'm undone. Job meets God and God says, hey, let me, let me show you who I am. Let me tell you a bit about my glory. And, and God spends about three chapters of the book of Job saying, here's my glory on display. And Job says this in Job 42. He says, God, I've heard about you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. I've always heard what you were like, but now I know. And what's he say? He says, I repent in dust and ashes. Revelation chapter one, John sees Jesus in his glory and he falls down like he's dead. If we're still messing around with sin and we're still, still making our lives all about meaningless pursuits, maybe we need to take a fresh look into heaven and to see the awesomeness of God. Our lives should be changed. You don't leave an encounter like this and just continue on in the same way. I mean, Moses' face Sean, Jacob left broken and humbled. The apostle Paul was transformed from being this murdering, hateful man to the greatest missionary ever. The disciples left their careers. And yet so often we approach Christianity with this, this I'm just gonna play around with church and with worship and our lives may look a little bit different, but, but our pursuits probably look more like anybody else's pursuits Think about God's glory in Psalm 19. The psalmist says this, the heavens are telling of the glory of God. Day after day, they pour forth their speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. Their voice goes forth to the ends of the earth. What's the psalmist saying? He says, the, the created around us, creation around us is doing what it was created to do. It's declaring the glory of God. And when you see a star, star-filled sky, when you stand before a mountain range and you're, you're filled with this, wow. Why? Because they're doing what they're created to do. They're, they're submitting to, they're declaring the glory of God. So let me ask you this. When someone looks at your life, are they doing the same thing? Are they in awe of God's glory by what you reflect? Are they in awe of God's glory in what you post online? And how you speak? And how you live? Are we reflecting the glory of God that we see? Are we reflecting why we were created? Let's keep reading. Verse four, it says, around the throne were these 24 elders. Look down at verse six. It says, around the throne on each side of the throne, so these elders also around the throne are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, he who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who's seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne. What's our response to this God of glory? Here's our fourth point. Our response is this, I will worship. I will worship. I mean, all throughout the book of Revelation, you see that when, whenever God, his glory is revealed, heaven bursts out in a song. 
fact, I would say this, if you show up at church and you're the kind of person like, you know what, I'll just put up with the music, I just want to get to the preaching, you're not going to really like heaven because heaven seems to be this ongoing worship service of song. A ton of worship. So let me ask you this, what is it that drives our worship? Why would we gather and sing songs? Why is it so important for us to come together corporately to worship? I mean, is it the emotion? Is it the, is it the passion? Is it, is it the song choice? Oh, I like that song. That's a good one. What's the central force of our worship? What drives worship in heaven is seeing a view of God's glory. The song they're singing here, they're singing holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Holy, holy, holy. They don't just say it once. They don't just say it twice. If you were to say it twice, that's a, a Jewish way of, of underlining and bolding something, right? You say it twice, it's three times. The ultimate degree, God, you are holy. You are pure. You're majestic. You're divine. You're glorious. You're set apart from everything else. You're unique. You're awesome. And who's singing this? Who's saying this? You've got these 24 elders. What do they represent? Some say they might be the 12 patriarchs of the Old Testament and the 12 apostles in the New Testament. Some say maybe it's the 24 priests of the Old Testament. In any case, here, here's what they are. These, these elders around the throne, they represent you and me. And what are they doing? On our behalf right now, they're worshiping. You have these creatures they're described similarly by, by, by Isaiah and by Ezekiel. Most scholars say they probably represent the, all of creation. Whatever they are, we know what they're doing. They're worshiping. And imagine, picture these creatures. As you read that, kind of picture what they would look like and picture if the four of them walked in here this morning or flew in because one has wings. All right, they, they roll in here this morning, these, these huge, awesome, I mean, if they came in this room, something so beyond what we ever could imagine. I mean, how horrifying would that be? I'm telling you, I would need a change of pants for the second service, all right? But what are they doing? They're saying, don't look at us. Forget about us. It's all about him. He's the one who's worthy. So why do we worship? Why, why would we sacrifice? Why would we give our lives as, as lives of worship with a, this reckless abandon? Why would we gather together to sing? Why do the disciples give up everything to follow Jesus? Why, why did the early church give up everything? What about us? Why would our worship be like that? Look at verse 11. Here's why. Worthy are you, O Lord, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. When you get a view of the worthiness and the glory of God, a response is worship. And so we sing today. We gather together to sing. And as you do that, as you, as you gather as the church to sing, as you go about your week with, with worship in your heart, as you pray, I mean, take some time to come back to this passage and understand, who am I singing to? Who am I praying to? Scripture says that we can boldly come into this throne room. That when you pray, that's where you are. You're in this picture that John's describing here. When you're singing songs, when you're calling out to the Lord in worship, and I'm telling you, I love that we sing. I was just listening this, this week to a sermon on worship where it talks about Amy Carmichael. says that when we sing, it's like Satan's like, I gotta get out of here, and he has to leave the room. Like there's something about worship. I love in 2 Chronicles, Jehoshaphat goes into battle with what? With the worship team out front. 
Picture that, right? Skinny jeans and scarves. They're the ones in front of the warriors, okay? Why? Because we worship as a, as a weapon of God's grace. We sing, not because it's, it's, oh, it makes me feel good inside, because God says, sing as you go out. Why? Because you're declaring my glory. And when you declare my glory, Satan's like, I don't want any part of that. You're in this throne room, lightning and thunder and colors shining and creatures and elders worshiping. That's the God you pray to. That's the God you worship. Here's our last point this morning as we wrap this up. What else would this view of God's glory do? Listen, I will endure and I'll live my life on mission. When we start to see that things in our world feel like they're spinning out of control, we can come back to Revelation chapter four. We go, they're not out of control. God has it in control. History's in his hands. And he's doing all of this for our good and ultimately, listen, for his glory, for the glory of his name. So we rest in that, that God, you're in control. Our enemy has already been conquered. Jesus has already overcome. He, he overcame sin. He overcame death. He overcame the devil. I mean, I love in Colossians 2.15, it says that Jesus has disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Listen, and you are a conqueror in Christ. And it may not always look that way. It may not always feel that way. I don't know if today I feel like a conqueror, but listen, listen, look at the cross again. I mean, is a cross really a picture of conquering? A, a bloody brutally maimed, beaten, naked man hanging on a tree. I mean, is that a picture of conquering? Not in the eyes of the world, it isn't. In the same way, is, is the picture of first century Christians here as John's writing this as they're being burned at the stake? Is that a picture of conquering? Not in the eyes of the world, it isn't. But the gospel, the glory of God turns this all upside down so that in the, in the brutal crucifixion of Jesus, he's conquering death. In, in the brutal murder of Christians, the church was advancing the gospel. So let me say this. If you're walking through a season of pain and suffering, and it doesn't feel like you're conquering in this season, know this. As you share in the sufferings of Christ, you participate, listen, in the reign of Christ. And so what do we do? We serve, we go, we give, we sacrifice. Why? Because God is worthy. We overcome idolatry and sin and fear and complacency and distraction. Why? Because we see a greater vision of God's glory. And when you see the grandeur of God, like here in Revelation 4, and listen, you no longer bow down and worship a, a worldly king or a wooden statue or a Roman emperor. When you see the glory of God, you stop worshiping money and success and acclaim and comfort. You stop worshiping yourself. You see a glimpse of this, this God and all of his glory. And what happens? We're delivered from pettiness and pursuing the meaningless Here's my heart, that the cry of our church, the cry of our hearts would be verse 11. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Listen, as the worship team comes up this morning, as we end off this morning, I'm going to get you to stand with me right now.
You can ask even right now to bow your heads and close your eyes. And before we respond and worship, I want you to do this. That you'd picture this throne room described in Revelation chapter 4. You'd picture your God sitting on his throne. This, this blinding light like diamonds and rubies, a, a rainbow encircling the throne. There's, there's 24 other thrones around it, but those, those elders sitting, those, those thrones, they drop out of their thrones. They lay their crowns down. You see the flashes of light and you hear the rolls of thunder. You see the, the burning lamps, a sea of glass. You see these living creatures with wings and eyes all over and they're singing out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. They're laying down their lives. They're laying down what is important, their crowns. What is it that right now, you're like, I gotta lay this down. I gotta lay down this, this thing that I've been holding on to, this opinion that I think is so important, this, this comfort that I go after, this complacency. I gotta lay down this, this fear. I wanna lay down this hurting and I wanna lay it down and say, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Listen, this morning as we sing, we're joining these elders, we're joining these angels, we're joining these creatures in worship, and we're singing to our God. Let's sing together.